Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Tonight I want to talk to you about the final judgment, which is the subject of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Uh, To sort of get us ready for it, uh, I heard a neat little story the other day. Uh, On the outskirts of a small town, there was a big old pecan tree just inside uh, the local cemetery fence. And one day, two boys uh, filled up a bucket full of nuts and sat down by the tree out of sight, and they began dividing up the pecans. One for you, one for me, one for you, one for me, said the boy. And several were dropped, and they rolled down toward the fence. Another boy came riding along on his bicycle, And as he passed, he thought he heard voices inside the cemetery. So he slowed down to investigate. Sure enough, he heard, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. Well, he just knew what it was. So he jumped back on his bicycle and he rode off. And just around the corner, he met an old man uh, hobbling on a cane. And he said, come here quick. You won't believe what I heard. He says, Satan and the Lord are down at the cemetery dividing up the souls. And so the man said, get out of here, kid. You you can see it's hard for me to walk. But when the boy insisted, the man hobbled slowly to the cemetery and standing by the fence, they heard, one for you, one for me, one for you, one for me. The old man whispered, boy, you've been telling me the truth. He says, let's see if we can see the Lord. So shaking with fear, they peered through the fence and they were still unable to see anything. So the old man and the boy gripped the wrought iron fence tighter and tighter and got closer and closer and they still couldn't see the Lord. And at last they heard, one for you, one for me. Now that's all, let's go get those nuts by the fence. And as they say, the old man made it back to town five minutes before the kid on the bicycle did. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if you've heard that one, but anyway. Uh, You know, We are talking about a serious topic, though, and so many times we have to prepare ourselves for it, don't we? Um, We can die at any moment, and the Lord can come back, and we need to be be sure that we're ready. Whether we die first or whether the Lord comes back first, uh, whichever, uh, that's when opportunity is going to be out. It's going to be time up, and we've got to be ready. Now, in Revelation, before we jump into chapter 20, I want to do a throwback and go back to Revelation 11. You've heard me say before that many times in Revelation something is introduced and then later on it's expounded and explained. Well, you're going to see that about the final judgment. It is introduced in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, You know we've gone through seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Well, this is the seventh trumpet in the middle of the book, Revelation chapter 11. And when that seventh angel blows that seventh trumpet, uh, among other things, here's what is said by the 24 elders. And I'm just going to read one verse out of that passage. It's in verse 18, Revelation 11, 18. The uh, 24 elders around the throne say, The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great, 
and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. And so in other words, at the seventh trumpet, when it all goes down, that's when you're going to have a resurrection because the dead are going to be judged. They have to be raised to be judged. So there'll be a resurrection of the dead and there will be a judgment of the righteous and the wicked. And I like what one commentator says. He says, the prospect of final judgment ought to be a terror to God's enemies and a foundation of assurance to the saints. And that's true. Depending on who you are, depending on where you stand with God, you either are going to look forward to this day or you're going to dread this day. But nevertheless, this day is coming. And it'll be a terror to God's enemies, but it'll be a foundation of assurance to the saints. So let's look at the final judgment beginning in Revelation 20, picking up in verse 11. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from His presence and no place was found for them. The first thing I want you to notice about this judgment is the judge. Look at the judge. Um, the one that is seated on this great white throne. It is such a fearful scene that even earth and heaven flee from His presence, but there's nowhere to go. I like what Dennis Johnson says. He says, The first heaven and earth, as they are characterized in Revelation 21.1, are partially personified, and their flight from the presence of the Holy Judge signifies their having been defiled by the taint of human sin. Now, what is he trying to say? Well, if you jump ahead just a little, if you jump ahead to Revelation 21.1, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So at this time, when it's time for the judgment, I mean, it is cosmic, it is earth-shattering, Okay. Uh, heaven and earth try to flee from God's presence. Why? Because they have even been, all of creation has been subject to the fall and been tainted by sin. Now the one seated on the throne throughout Revelation, according to G.K. Beale, and he is right about this, the one seated on the throne throughout Revelation is God. However, as he goes on to say, and I agree, it would not be problematic if it were Jesus seated on the throne here in Revelation 20. Uh, so therefore, regardless of who's sitting on the throne, God, Christ, or both will execute the last judgment. Now, why do I say that? Well, first of all, we know that this revelation from the very beginning is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about the second coming of Christ and it's about the consummation of His kingdom. And when we compare it to other things that Jesus said in the Gospels, I want to share this with you. In Matthew 25, um, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So when Christ comes, He will rule and He will reign. Uh, John 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself, and he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. And that's Jesus talking in the Gospel of John. And Jesus is saying, 
that the Father has entrusted Him with the authority to judge mankind because He's the Son of Man. Okay? Uh, that's pretty powerful. It gets even more pointed when we think about it. Uh, if you go to Acts chapter 10, the context of this passage, you remember when God uh, got Peter's attention and Peter, uh, after being invited by two men to go to Cornelius' house and having that heavenly vision, he decided that he needed to be obedient to God and go. And so Peter, in Acts chapter 10, went to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. That was a taboo thing if you were a Jew. And uh, he begins to preach the gospel to him. And he's like, oh, I get it now. God is not a partial God. He, he loves everybody, wants all people to be saved. And in the middle of his little sermon, here's what he says. In Acts chapter 10, verse 39 through 42, Peter talking to Cornelius and all those in his house, Peter says, we ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. Yet they killed him, that's referring to Jesus, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, listen, that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now that's powerful, isn't it? That's Peter saying, look, Jesus commanded us to preach that He is going to be the judge of the living and the dead. So we know that Christ will do that. Uh, Paul said, in effect, the same thing. In Acts 17, uh, Paul was in Athens, Greece, and uh, you know he saw all their uh, idols and stuff, and he found one that said to an unknown God, and instead of condemning them of idolatry, he took a more winsome approach and said, hey, I'm going to tell you about this God you don't know about. And he began to tell them about the God of Scripture that we read about in the Bible. And he said in Acts 17, verse 31, Paul said that God has set a day when He's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. Okay? So I'm not saying that God's not on the throne, but what I am saying is that I believe that God and the Son will be on the throne because God has appointed for Christ to judge the living and the dead, and that's something they will do together. Matter of fact, Paul kind of says it that way in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. When Paul told uh, young Timothy to preach the Word, he, he um, delivered this charge by saying these words. He said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Okay? And so that's good. So the first thing we look at and when it comes to the final judgment is we look at the judge, the one who is on the throne, and He has the authority to judge all of mankind, the living and the dead, and it's such a, a solemn scene that even earth and heaven flee from His presence, but there's no place to hide. And can I tell you something? If it's no place for them to hide, I can tell you that there's no place for anyone else to hide either. The second thing I want you to notice about the final judgment is the judgment itself. Look in verse 12 and 13. 
he says, I saw also the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Now, as William Hendrickson says, here is the one general resurrection. The one and only general resurrection takes place at the last day, according to Jesus in the Gospel of John. And he says, nowhere in the entire Bible do we read of a resurrection of the body of believers followed after a thousand years by a resurrection of the body of unbelievers all arise at the same time. Now, that's here, here's a little rabbit trail, okay? Give me a few minutes. Let me just throw this out here. It's a side issue. I really want to focus on the judgment, but when you go through Revelation, you've got to deal with particulars, okay? I like what George Murray said. I'm going to read what he said, and then I'll break it down. But here's what he said. The anomaly confronting us here is that one can read the whole Bible without discovering an inkling of the doctrine of two resurrections separated by a thousand years until you get to Revelation chapter 20, the third to the last chapter in the Bible. If on coming to that chapter, you, you give a literal interpretation to one sentence of a highly symbolic passage, then you will find it necessary to retrace your steps and interpret all of the other eschatology teachings of the Bible in a manner that are, that's agreeable with this one sentence. And the recognized rule of exegesis is to interpret an obscure passage of Scripture in light of a clear statement. So in this case, clear statements are being interpreted to agree with a literal interpretation of one sentence from a context replete with symbolism, the true meaning of which is highly debatable. Now that's a mouthful, I know, but I would agree with him. In other words, until you get to Revelation 20 and you read about this thousand years, then everybody goes crazy with the millennium. And there are four different, well, there's either four or five. Historically, there's four views of the millennium. I've got a book about this, and there's like four different views of the millennium. And then as I was reading another commentary the other day, Charles, a guy threw a new term. You know what he said, Bob? He said he's pro-millennial. <laughs> and then he picked and chose what he liked. Yeah, I'm for it, but I think it's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of that. But anyway, uh, there's so many ways you can go with this. But here's what I want to say. Um, this is the most symbolic book in the Bible. I think we can all agree with that because that's why it gives everybody fits. You know, we're trying to understand this and we don't understand, you know, the scorpions and the beast and all this stuff, what's going on. It's a very symbolic book of the Bible. Yes, it has a literal meaning, but we have to interpret it the way it is written, it's apocalyptic literature. And I was always taught that you read something in context. So if I don't understand a Bible verse, then I read that passage. If I don't understand that, then I read that chapter. If I don't understand that, then I read the whole book that this verse is in, okay? You look at things contextually. But another rule of interpretation is this. When it comes to the doctrines of the Bible, when it comes to the teachings of Scripture, always start with what is super clear, okay? What is, the, what is the Bible clear on? And then when we get to these obscure or debatable passages, 
then we'll see how that fits into the clear teaching of Scripture. Um, but I'm afraid that sometimes people see something here in Revelation 20 and they build their viewpoint on it and then they make everything else in the Bible fit that viewpoint. Let me give you an example. I'm going to give you a two-minute peek under the hood. Okay, I hope I don't lose you. This is a side note, but I'm going to give you a two-minute peek under the hood. For instance, uh, Dean Davis said this, and I think he's right. He says, when it comes to the number of resurrections and judgments, he says, some say that the millennial saints will be raised and glorified all throughout the millennium, each at the moment of his or her death, but such a procedure is barely imaginable and totally incredible. More importantly, there's not a shred of biblical evidence to support it and much to speak against it, since, as we have seen, the New Testament consistently teaches a single general resurrection at the end of the age. Others will say that the millennial saints will be raised close to the end of the millennial, but prior to the resurrection and judgment of the wicked. Now, don't, don't, don't uh, stick with me. Don't, don't, don't let me lose you. Here's what he says next, and I'll break this down. He says, those that hold to a historic premillennial view are effectively positing three separate resurrections, one at the second coming of Christ and two at the end of the thousand years, one for the righteous, one for the wicked. If you're a premillennial dispensationalist, you're positing four resurrections, the three I just said, plus an additional one at the pre-trib rapture. And um, here's what I want to say about all that without reading the rest of his quote and getting anybody confused. As I began to study this years ago for the first time on my own, okay, when I finally got brave enough to study all this Bible prophecy, because I went from I don't care and I don't know to finally one day I woke up and said, you know, I want to know, I need to know if I'm going to preach and teach the Bible, then I need to know where I stand on it. And I, st I studied it for over a year. I'll, I'll give you a little clue and a little hint that helped me tremendously. Depending on your view of Bible prophecy, you will either believe that there is one resurrection, three resurrections, or four resurrections. Now, most people that uh, teach Bible prophecy, they won't tell you that. So what I'm giving you is a litmus test. In the future, if you want to know what somebody believes about Bible prophecies, then ask them this question. How many resurrections are there going to be? And wait for the answer. How many resurrections are there going to be? Is there one? Is there three? Is there four? And when you find out what their math is, then you're going to know what their beliefs are. And that's true. And that's true. Personally, I believe that there is one resurrection and one judgment of all people at the end of the age. And we'll, we'll keep looking at that. Um, here's how Herschel Hobbes said it, and I'm, I love Herschel Hobbes. He's a Southern Baptist pastor that died years ago. He's one of the older generation ones, but here's what Herschel Hobbes said, okay? He said, when all matters are considered, it seems more likely that there is one judgment at the end of the age, and I agree with him. Uh, Michael Kukendall, you've heard me quote him a little bit. He says, the great white throne refers to the final judgment at the conclusion of history, where all the dead, believers and unbelievers, are judged. There is one final judgment at the climax of history. All people, great and small, righteous and unrighteous, appear before the judge. 
Let me give you an example. Those that believe in multiple resurrections and judgments, they will cite Matthew 25. Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And uh, depending on what branch of Bible prophecy you're in, they'll say this is where God judges the nations and He decides which ones are going to go through the millennium and which ones are not. And I don't see that anywhere uh, in that passage. But in Matthew 25, it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before Him. To me, that's just another way of saying everybody's going to be there. Okay, If you look at how Matthew uses the term nations, he uses it a lot. Okay, He uses it in Matthew 24, where nation will rise against nation and kingdom will uh, rise against kingdom. That's one of the signs leading up to the Lord coming back. Uh, he says at one point that you'll be hated by all nations on account of me. Uh, then he talks here about there will be a judgment of all nations. And then, of course, the most famous one of all is in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? All nations. Okay? And so you got to look at how, again, context, context, context. Look at how Matthew uses that term. Look at what all Matthew says about the nations. But here he says, all the nations will be gathered before him and He will separate them one from another just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. At that point, the distinction doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. He puts everybody in one of two groups. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. Okay, And uh, I won't read the whole parable, but it bears out that um, He looks at how they lived their lives and it proved whether they were a sheep or a goat. And it says he put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And then at the very end in verse 46 of Matthew 25, and it says that uh, those on his left will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the sheep, will go into eternal life. And so you see this separation of the righteous and the wicked. Okay, It's funny because today our world is so consumed and dividing all of us into categories and demographic categories and subgroups of all kinds based on uh, the color of our skin or how much money we make or, or whatever, whatever, whatever. In God's eyes, there's two people, those that know Him and those that don't. Period. Okay? Period. And Daniel chapter 12, just to show you some Old Testament roots to this teaching that I'm, uh, that I'm pointing to in Scripture. In Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, the prophet said, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. There are the seeds right there of a resurrection and a judgment. Uh, one Bible verse I didn't put in my notes, but I can mention to you. And when I began to study Bible prophecy, it's something that God took, back, uh, took me back to many times because I was always afraid to study Bible prophecy. I was like, that's not my thing. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. And, you know, I just didn't want to get all consumed with it. Uh, because I know some guys that are so consumed with it that that's like the plank of their ministry. It's all they talk about. It's all they teach on and all that. And so I didn't really want to get all consumed with it. But one thing that helped me get started studying it and kept me studying it until I finally came to a place of conviction. This is a Bible verse I didn't give you, Devin, but it's Hebrews 6, 
uh, and I'll just read the first two verses. It's Hebrews 6, the first two verses, and I hope you catch this, okay? Just listen to what it says. In Hebrews 6, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So what he's saying is, he was saying to the people that he wrote this letter to, we need to move forward into spiritual maturity. We need to stop going over the basic elementary things of the faith. And he named six things, but he put them in three couplets or pairs. The first pair was dead works and faith in God, okay? Or repentance, excuse me. Repentance from dead works and faith in God. That's really the gospel right there. When you talk to people about repentance and faith, that's the gospel. That's how to get saved. And then the, the second couplet is um, teachings about uh, ritual washings um, or baptisms, depending on your translation, baptisms and the laying on of hands. That's a total different group. I don't want to get sidetracked there. But once you get saved, you hear about the importance of baptism. And then whenever we ordain uh, people uh, for service, you see the laying on of hands. And then the third couplet is this. It is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And what the Holy Spirit showed me was repentance and faith go together, baptism, laying on of hands go together, and resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment go together. And what the Hebrew author is saying, that's elementary, Watson. That's elementary. So when it comes to studying the Bible, if you understand repentance, if you understand faith in Christ, then you should be able to understand resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and they go together. Okay. Um, moving on, in Acts 24, Paul the Apostle said this. He said in Acts 24, 15, I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, pointing to the Pharisees, that there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's true. Paul went on to say to the church in Corinth, which was a Gentile congregation, in chapter 5, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay? That's all. Okay? Now, again, I don't think... Again... I've got some godly people that I would disagree with that would say, now, Corey, there is the white throne judgment and then there's the judgment seat of Christ and they're two different things. But I hope what you see in Scripture that I just shared is that God is including Christ in the judgment. So I don't see them as two separate things. I see them as two aspects of the same thing. And then in Romans 14, uh, verse 10 uh, Paul the Apostle says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So he went from talking about the judgment seat of Christ to the church at Corinth. Now he's talking to the Roman congregation, calling it the judgment seat of God. Do you see here how it's, you know, it's, it's the same thing in my opinion. He says, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. 
And that's what I want you to realize is when this final judgment goes down, everybody's going to be there. It's going to be a divine appointment. And it says that books will be opened and that people will be judged according to their works. Now, I have to be careful here because if I'm talking to someone that doesn't have an understanding of the Bible and they just have their own thoughts about what it's going to look like, uh, for many, time, many times through the years, culturally, we have this idea of we're going to stand before God and He's going to look at our life and we're going to have that scale and it's going to be good or bad. And if it leans toward the good, then whoosh, that's culture. That's not Scripture. Okay. Now, the Bible does say that He will judge us according to our works, but what does that mean? I like what Kendall Easley said. He said it very well. He said, complementary truths are at work here, okay? Complementary truths. One truth is we're saved by grace through faith. That's absolutely true. But the other truth is equally valid. True faith reveals itself by righteous works. It's the old um, straw man argument between Paul and James. Paul said that I am saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God and I can't boast. It's something that God did for me. That's absolutely true. But then James, the Lord's brother, said, you show me your faith and I'll show you my faith by my works because faith without works is dead. And that's absolutely true. And so I guess you could say it this way. If you are saved by grace through faith, then you will surely show it. Otherwise, you didn't have it. Does that make sense? Please say yes. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> okay? If you truly are saved, then the things that accompany salvation will be the evidence and the proof that you really are saved. And that's why Paul told the church at Corinth to examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Uh, and the, the litmus test is this, is Christ in you? If He's in you, then you, you're saved. And if He's not, then nothing else is going to help you. So the books are open. He saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. That is a throwback to uh, Daniel chapter 7. And the books are opened. And uh, skimming on down here, to Dennis Johnson has a quote. He says, The books are open is a direct allusion to the courtroom scene in Daniel 7. After the thrones were set up in Daniel 7, and the Ancient of Days took the throne of honor as the chief justice, the court sat and the books were open, and the open books contain records of each person's life or actions. And throughout Scripture, God's justice is shown in repaying His creatures according to what they have done, whether good or evil. And He gives several Bible references there. Notice in verse 12, I also saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, okay? And it says another book was opened, which is the book of life. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Now, the same God who sees your tears and keeps them in a bottle, as Psalm says, the same God who knows the number of hairs on your head, He knows everything about your life. And He documents things better than anybody in the 21st century could ever imagine. I mean, think about it. Our kids and grandkids today are the most, to date, to date, at present, they are the most surveillance generation that's ever lived on the face of the earth, okay? 
They, they have something on them at all times. And big brother, big dada knows exactly where they go and what they do and how they spend their time and how many hours they are on the phone and yada, 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 yada. And with each coming generation, with the control mechanisms of technology, uh, you're going to know more and more and more about the habits and preferences uh, of, of people uh, all over the world. But that doesn't even come close to how well God knows you and He knows me. And one of these days, we will have to stand before God and give an account. Um, more about that in a minute. Now, let's look at this book of life. Not only are the books open, but another book was open, which is the book of life. Now, what is that? Because before you get to Revelation, you might say, what's the book of life? Didn't know there was a book of life. Well, jumping ahead, I'm going to give you two quotes from Revelation. One is looking ahead and one is looking back. But looking ahead in the next chapter, Revelation 21, in verse 27, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. You can see it there at the end of that verse. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. So it goes from being the Book of Life to the Lamb's Book of Life. And you'll know, you know that the Lamb is one of the names for Jesus, particularly in the book of Revelation. And why is that? Well, let's go back to a previous verse in Revelation 13, verse 8, when it says, All those who live on the earth will worship the beast, and everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. Okay, So now there's, there's more understanding there. It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. Okay, The Lamb of God. John the Baptist exclaimed, Here, behold, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay? Jesus came and he died on that cross. He died in my place, in your place. He died for all our sin. And for those that come to him and repent of their dead works, as Hebrews 6 says, and put their faith in Christ, then they are saved and their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here's another way you could say it. When you go back and re read verse 12 again, uh, here we are, everybody, great and small, standing before the throne, and books are open, and then another book is open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And so you have books about everybody. I would call that the book of deeds. And it's got everybody's deeds. Everything you've ever done is in the books. And then it's got a book of names. That's what the book of life is. If your name is in the book of life, praise God. You don't have anything to worry about. But if your name is not in the book of life, then you should be concerned. And so you'll have a book of deeds, everything we've ever done, and a book of names. Who, who's saved, who's not. And that really brings it down. Now, when I try to describe this, the more I think about it, here's what I want to say. When Judgment Day comes, I don't think it's going to be an investigative judgment. Now, let me clarify my words here because I really don't want to be misunderstood. When I say investigative judgment, you know, when we get excited about a big ball game, let's say a big basketball game. Let, let's say that let's say that UK makes it to the Final Four this year, and then they win it and they go to the championship, and we're all excited, right? 
because we're like, hey, they made it into the big game. But prior to the tip-off, we don't know if they're going to win. We want them to win. We hope they win, but we can't say, oh, yeah, they're going to win. I mean, cross your fingers, right? When it comes to the judgment of God, I don't think God goes into judgment day saying, I wonder if they're saved or that saved. Well, I don't know. I guess I need to look and find out. He already knows, okay? Uh, the, 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 the whole point of judgment day is making public who is and who is not, and then particularly discovering the degree of reward and the degree of punishment. Now, what do I mean by that? I have to go back to Jesus on this one because he's more qualified than anybody else I know to give us more details about this. Uh, I, could, I cited a few, and I had to go back through my notes, and I said, too much information, too much information. So I'm going to give you one passage to chew on for a little bit, but it's in Luke chapter 12, verse 47 and 48, um, where Jesus is talking about this. And um, I'm just giving you two verses out of the passage. But he says in Luke 12, 47, that the servant who knew his master's will and didn't prepare himself or do it will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment will receive a light beating. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. I, I think you see a principle here. And Jesus went on to talk in the Gospels and other places that if certain miracles had happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented, but you didn't. Okay, He said that in the Gospels. I mean, boy, he was, he was tough to the uh, religious self-righteous Pharisees of his day. What was he saying? He's saying that at the judgment, certain people will rise up and say, man, you know, we repented when God gave us this much light. And God gave you even more light, and you didn't repent. Shame on you, you know? And God is going to reward all of us differently, each one according to his own work. Um, it's a lot to chew on, I know. So let's go back and look at this again, the final judgment. We've looked at the judge. We've looked at the judgment. Everyone's going to be there because the sea is going to give up the dead in verse 13. And death and Hades are going to give up the dead that were in them and each one will be there, small and great, and they'll be judged. And then notice the verdict in verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I like what Warren Wiersbe says about hell. Now, let me say this. Hell is not a topic that I like to talk about. I can honestly tell you that I've only preached, uh, like on a Sunday morning preached, in my entire ministry. And by the way, and Mom will remind me of this this week, but um, 30, 30 years ago at 3 a.m. in a few hours, I surrendered to preach. June 3rd, 3 a.m., 1991. <laughs> I can remember that quite well. I was up all night. And um, so I'm coming up on 30 years in the ministry. Uh, I think that's still young, right? Yeah, okay. And uh, anyway, as I think about it, um, I've only preached on hell three or four times. And 
I have to tell this story and I'll move on, but years ago in a, in a previous church that I served, a young lady uh, had uh, grown up in church, got out of church, uh, come home after being in the military, and started coming to church again. And she was dating this guy, and she goes, I'm trying to get him in church, but he don't want to come. And I said, well, just keep praying for him. Keep, you know, keep, keep, keep the lines open there. And she came back to me one day, and she goes, he says that he don't want to come because um, every time he's ever going to church, the preacher preaches on hell. And I told him, well, you need to come because Brother Corey never preaches on hell. Well, God had the last laugh, Herman, because that Sunday came. I didn't know any of this. It was just another week, another Sunday. And I get up that morning real early, and Nancy says, what's wrong? And I said, I'm preaching on hell. God changed my sermon. And I get up there that Sunday morning, and I preach on hell. And then after the fact, she says, I brought him here, and you preached on hell. I said, listen. I'm just the delivery man. God's trying to get his attention, you know. I wish I could give you a, uh, a happy ending to that story, but they broke up and life went on. But hell is something we don't like to talk about. And Warren Wearsby said this about it. He said, hell is a witness to the righteous character of God. He must judge sin. Hell is also a witness to man's responsibility. The fact that he's not a robot or a helpless victim, but a creature able to make choices. God does not send people to hell. They send themselves by rejecting the Savior. Hell is a witness to the awfulness of sin. And if we once saw sin as God sees it, we would understand why a place such as hell exists. And the more I think about that, the more I say, that's right, Brother Wearsby, that's right. <clears throat> With all that said, what does this mean for you and I? Well, I want to remind you of um, what Jesus said. Jesus said that we'd be judged by our words and our works. Let me give you those scriptures real quick. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus said, I tell you that on the day of judgment... People will have to account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus will judge us by our words, everything we've said. Not only will He judge us by our words, He will judge us by our works. That is everything we've ever done. Paul, the apostle, said in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, let me give you final thoughts here. Let me give you some assurance to those that know Christ. The assurance to those that follow Christ is found in 1 John 4, 15. 1 John 4, the apostle whom Jesus loved said this. He said, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God, and we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. 
Now you're going, where is this going? Well, if I'm in Christ and He's in me and I love Him and He loves me and I'm walk- I know God and I'm walking with God, then I'm made complete so that I can have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? Our confidence on the day of judgment is based on our relationship with Christ and living like Him in this world. And if we do that, then we have the assurance that we're ready for that day. On the other side of the coin, I want to give a a parting thought, and this is a warning to everyone, and that is this. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, the judgment. Adrian Rogers told a story years ago about a young preacher that went to a new church. And um, there was a guy there named Bert Only, I think was his name, that uh, Brother Adrian shared. And when the new preacher got there, he said, Oh, are you the new preacher in town? He says, Yes, I am. He says, I want you to know I think you're a phony. I think you're a fraud. I don't believe a word in the Bible, and you're wasting your time. And the young preacher said, it's been appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. And old Bert said, no, don't be quoting that Bible to me. I done told you I don't believe it. I don't agree with it. I think you're a phony. I think it's a fraud. We're not even talking about it. And each time in this exchange, it was like four or five exchanges, and each time the only thing this young preacher said, it's been appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. And after going round and round, and that's all the pastor would say, he says, well, I guess you're not going to argue with me. And he turned around and left. And as the story goes, that night on the way home, everywhere he went on his way home, going down the country road, the, the frogs croaking in the field, the, the water running in the creek bed, everywhere he went, he just heard judgment, judgment, judgment. And he finally came back to that young preacher and he says, what do I need to do to get saved? I want you to understand that it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. There is one appointment that all of us will keep someday. When judgment day happens, I guarantee you every single one of you will be there. I will be there. Everyone in the world is going to be there. Everyone that's lived before us, everyone that's going to come after us, everybody, small and great, dead or alive, everyone will be there. I want to close with this final story. Daniel Webster, who was known for the dictionary, as you well know. He served as Secretary of State under our 13th President, Millard Fillmore. He was dining with 20 gentlemen one time at the Astaire House in New York City. And one of the men asked him, Mr. Webster, would you tell me what was the most important thought that ever occupied your mind? Now, that's a pretty good question for a smart man like Daniel Webster who literally wrote the dictionary. And after a pause, he passed his hand over his forehead. He said in a low tone to the person next to him, he says, is there anyone here that doesn't know me? And he said, no, we're all here and we're all your friends. And then he spoke up loudly and clearly and he said this. He said, the most important thought that ever occupied my mind was that of my individual responsibility to God. And he spent 20 minutes talking to him about it. I don't know about you, but it's my prayer tonight 
that you and I are prepared for the final judgment. Life really does have a final exam, and it's pass or fail. And it comes down to, do you know Jesus, and does he know you? And it's my prayer tonight that if you don't know Jesus, you would take a moment to make sure that you do before it's everlasting too late. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time in your word. Lord, I pray that you would press upon our hearts and our minds the significance, the importance of a final judgment. One day when we all stand before you, and every word that we've spoken, every deed that we've done will be evaluated. And Lord, if our name is found in the Lamb's book of life, then our deeds and our words will demonstrate that our faith was real, that it was more than just talk, it was walk. And Father, for those that never believed to begin with, their words and their deeds will verify that they didn't know you. Father, I pray that we'll all be ready for that day, for that moment, before it's everlasting too late. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.